Hey everyone and welcome back. And I have some exciting news. Secrets in the Cornfield Iowa's Unsolved podcast is officially on social media. So go onto Facebook and look up Secrets in the Cornfield podcast and join the group. I will be posting episodes there as well as pictures for each episode. So let's get started. On a typical Monday in Des Moines in 1967, a mother of three is found stabbed in her home while her husband is at work. She was still alive when the ambulance arrived, but died on her way to the hospital. Neighbors believed they saw the person responsible arrive and leave, but his presence at the house didn't arouse suspicion until he was long gone. This is the murder of Leota Camp. Twenty-five-year-old Raymond Camp and his wife, 25-year-old Leota Camp, were the proud parents of three children and living in a quiet neighborhood in Des Moines, Iowa. The couple had purchased a home at 3213 Fleming Avenue. Leota was a stay-at-home mom to four-year-old Kevin, three-year-old Brenda, and their newest arrival, three-month-old Christine. Raymond supported the family and worked at the Iowa Employment Security Commission as a tabulating equipment operator. Now, a tabulator, the best I could gather, was basically a machine used to help process larger amounts of data in a shorter period of time. It was invented to assist in the 1890 census, so basically, specific cards were created and holes were punched in them to identify markers. A card would then be placed in a tabulator, which would identify these holes to those specific markers and basically keep a running total. Over time, the machine became a little more sophisticated and was very popular in businesses for accounting and inventory purposes until it got phased out in the 1970s. Operators would place the cards into the machine and they could usually process 50 to 80 cards per hour. On July 10, 1967, Ray had gone to work and Leota woke up to start laundry and tend to the children. A thunderstorm had rolled through in the middle of the night, but by mid-morning, the clouds and drizzle had cleared to give the two oldest kids, Kevin and Brenda, a chance to go outside to go into the backyard and play. At some point while the kids were outside, Leota stepped outside to the back and checked on the kids and also hung up a load of laundry on the clothesline while she was out there. Leota finished hanging up the clothes and headed back into the house while the kids continued to play. At around noon, Kevin and Brenda went into the house to get lunch, and they found their infant sister in the living room lying on a white blanket drinking a warm bottle, but they couldn't seem to find their mom. As the kids looked through their house, they came across a horrifying scene. They ended up in the front bedroom of the house, and they found their mother lying face down on a blood-soaked bed. She was gagged and bound with a knife sticking out of her back. And poor four-year-old Kevin, terrified and scared for his mom, not knowing what to do, pulled the knife out of his mother's back 
and dropped it on the bed. Kevin and Brenda ran from the house crying and made their way next door to their neighbor, Mrs. Mary Grow. That's when she heard Kevin cry out, Mommy's bleeding. Mrs. Grow leaves Brenda and Kevin at her house and runs over to the camp's home. When she went inside the home, she witnessed the terrifying scene. After she found Leota on the bed, she ran over to the house on the other side of the camp's home to Mrs. Nellie Edwards. She was startled by Mrs. Grow telling her to come quick and something bad had happened to Leota. The two women go back into the camp home to the bedroom to try to help her. Leota was fully clothed in a blouse, skirt, and shoes. Her arms were crossed and tied behind her back with a necktie. She had also been bound with a necktie around her neck and her ankles. As Mrs. Edwards approached Leota, she had noticed that she had a necktie shoved into her mouth as a gag, but she wasn't dead. Miraculously, she was still alive. So Mrs. Edwards removed the tie from Leota's mouth and tried to ask her questions but Leota responded only in moans. It wasn't made clear who made the phone call to police, but the ambulance arrived shortly after and did all they could to try to save her life. In the seven-minute ride from the camp home to the county hospital, Leota had passed away and was declared dead upon arrival. Mr. Grow, Mary's husband, approached Mr. Camp at work and told him that there had been an accident with Leota and to go straight to the hospital. That is when Ray's world came crashing down and learned his wife of eight years had been murdered and he was now a widower and a single father to three young children. Back at the scene on Fleming Avenue, police spoke with neighbors and what they discovered was shocking. Neighbors had witnessed a man drive down Fleming Avenue around 11 a.m. and park about a house and a half away from Ray and Leota's home. He then got out of the car and cut across the front yard of the camp home and entered through the front door. It isn't known if it is the same neighbor or a different neighbor, but the man is then again seen leaving the camp home just before noon, walking across the yard again, getting into his car and driving off. The neighbors had not heard anything, and the way the man approached and left the home, they believed that Leota must have known him. His presence was enough to be noticed, but not strange enough to be alarming. According to the Des Moines Register, on Tuesday, July 11th, witnesses described the unknown individual as a good-looking white man, around 5 feet 8 inches tall, around 20 to 21 years old, with brown curly hair and a stocky build. He was wearing a brown and white plaid shirt and blue jeans but probably the most important description was the car he was driving. They described a dark, likely black Ford Mustang with louvers behind the doors. Now, for those of you like me who aren't car people and have no clue what this means, a louver is a series of blades similar to window blinds. They were used to allow light in, but keep moisture out. When police processed the house for clues, nothing was out of place or missing, so they really didn't get the impression that robbery was a motive. Then, when the county medical examiner, Dr. Leo Luca, released the results of Leota's autopsy, it made the case even more baffling. Leota was stabbed four times in the back, with the first knife wound about seven inches below the base of the neck, and each additional knife wound about one inch apart from each other 
going in a straight line down her spinal column. The knives had pierced her lungs and her death resulted from internal bleeding. There had been no evidence that she had been raped or sexually assaulted. The stab wounds to Leota's back were inflicted by two different knives from the same knife set. One was a four-inch blade and the other was a six-inch. One of the knives was found on the bed, which was the knife Kevin had pulled out of his mother's back. And a second knife was found, but the handle was missing. There are conflicting reports on where the second knife was located. Some people reported the assumption that the knife was still inside Leota's back, but early news reports in the paper claim that the blade of the knife was found on the bedroom floor. Neither of these, based on my research, have ever been confirmed, but it would make sense, and I'm sorry, I know this is going to sound very gruesome, that as the killer stabbed her in the back, the knife would have hit bone and that would likely cause the handle to break. So I guess I'm not sure. I tend to believe the blade was still likely stuck in her back. The medical examiner also concluded that other than the stab wounds to Leota's back, there were no signs of a physical struggle, no marks, scratches, or bruises. After Leota's autopsy and police's processing of the camp residents, they were able to confirm that the neckties used to tie and gag Leota belonged to her husband, Raymond Camp, and the knives used to kill her were knives from the home that had been missing from a knife rack in the kitchen. There had also been a second basket of laundry wash that was ready to be hung outside on the clothesline sitting in the kitchen. The two older children didn't see anyone else in the home, and thankfully, three-month-old Christine was completely unharmed. Now, something that you generally don't see in a criminal investigation is when a medical examiner decides to release a statement to the media of their theory of events, but that is just what Dr. Luca did. He believed that the killer entered the home while Leota was in the backyard, hanging the laundry, and when she came back into the house quicker than he anticipated, she likely walked into trouble and the intruder probably threatened to harm her infant daughter if she screamed or struggled. Generally, medical examiners will be brought to the scene of a crime if the scene helps them determine manner of death, if it's questionable. But there was no doubt they were dealing with a homicide. So again, I'm not sure why the medical examiner would feel it necessary to theorize what happened. The next day at 8 a.m., police received a call from an unknown individual that claimed his car had been sideswiped by a black Mustang and that the driver had sped away towards the airport and boarded a plane. Police didn't want to take any chances, so they sealed off all entrances and exits at the Des Moines Municipal Airport. They halted the 8.20 a.m. departure of an airplane scheduled for Omaha, Nebraska, while detectives checked all passengers on board and other officers scoured the airport parking lot and nearby streets, but they found no signs of a man fitting the witness's description or a black Mustang. Now, it's hard to say how this individual knew police were on the lookout for a black Ford Mustang unless there had been reports on the news the evening of her murder, or they could have read about it in the paper earlier that morning prior to calling into police. But either way, police felt confident that the Mustang was not at the airport and the caller was mistaken. On Wednesday, July 12th, the Des Moines Register released a sketch of their suspect in the paper and their description of the unknown man changes a bit. They change his estimated age to 20 to 25 years old, 
his height between five feet nine and five feet ten, and instead of blue jeans, list his clothing as dark trousers, and they said he had a tan. I will be putting this picture on the Facebook page so you can take a look at it as well. Those of you who are not on Facebook, the sketch release shows the man had relatively short, dark hair, I would say an elongated face, thin, dark eyebrows, and thin lips. But in general, didn't really have any features that would make him stand out in a crowd. It's not made clear if police had spoken with additional witnesses requiring police to change his description or not, but they eventually more or less kind of blend the reports together in the suspect description. Two days later, a report by Nick Lamberto in the Des Moines Register reveals that Leota had received a disturbing phone call about two weeks before her murder. At the time the call came in, Leota was home alone with the kids and had been feeding Christine. She put Christine down and answered the phone. When she answered, a man on the other end asked her, where you been? Leota said it was a strange tone of voice, but she initially thought it was one of the couple's friends just messing around and playing a joke. She then told them that she was feeding the baby. And the person on the other end replied, I thought maybe you were... Mr. Camp said, according to his wife, the caller used an obscene expression, which he refused to repeat. Leota was so shocked, she called Ray at work to tell him what had happened, and she told him she didn't recognize the voice at all. The most disturbing part is that the camp's number at the time wasn't in the phone book, so they had no idea how some stranger could have possibly gotten their phone number. It was the first and only call. And two weeks later, Leota was killed. Many believe the incidents are connected, but to this day, no one knows how. None of this made sense to the community. People living in the neighborhood said that Fleming Avenue was not a well-traveled street. At the time, it was a neighborhood kind of tucked away, and people didn't travel through it unless they lived there. In the months following the murder, mothers in the neighborhood would walk with their heads down, looking for any missed evidence while children playing outside would frantically run back in the house if they saw a Ford Mustang driving down their street. People who knew Leota said she was a very quiet person, but cared deeply about other people. She was a loving mother and lived a Christian life from the time she was young. There was never a bad thing anyone could say about her, and an enemy list was non-existent to the Camp family. Within the first four days of the investigation, police received about 500 calls with tips, but were not gaining any ground. Everyone that they had on their suspect list were able to be ruled out and kept taking them back to square one. So a little over a month later, on August 16th, Raymond Camp steps up and takes the investigation a step further. He pulls some money together and offers a $2,500 reward begging for the public's help to get a killer off the streets. The investigators working the case four days later pushed for answers about the car. Even though the witness statements changed during the investigation, the description of the car stayed pretty consistent, so they thought it was their best chance. They tell the public that they are looking for a dark blue or black 1965 or 1966 Ford Mustang Fastback 
and they said the louvers on the car the witnesses described were flush with the car and not protruding. But the problem was the car they were looking for, it was everywhere. About 559,000 1965 Ford Mustangs and over 607,000 1966 Ford Mustangs had been sold. So if you're doing the math, that's over 1.1 million Ford Mustangs between 1965 and 1966, but only around 100,000 of those were fastbacks. Police urged anyone who had a similar model car that they had left someplace like a body shop or a service station to come forward to police, insinuating that the killer may have stolen the vehicle to commit the crime. Police said that Mr. Camp's announcement of a cash reward brought in about half a dozen tips, but didn't turn up any new leads. By September, a little over two months after the murder, police had received about a thousand tips, questioned 600 individuals, and checked out 450 vehicles. But all the tips had been checked, and the people and cars had been cleared of suspicion. Then, on September 13th, the Des Moines Tribune releases a news article about the murder, and the age range of the suspect changed yet again. This time, they say he was likely between 23 and 30 years old. After this, there are no additional news articles releasing any further information regarding the case, and eventually Leota's murder becomes a cold case. A couple of things that stood out to me while researching this case were about the events surrounding the murder. Let's go back to the medical examiner's statement that the killer entered the home while Leota was in the backyard with Kevin and Brenda. Was that by chance, or did he know she wasn't inside? I pulled a photo of the neighborhood surrounding the camp home on Google Earth, which I will also include on the Facebook page. So if you are looking at the picture, it marks where the camp home was. It seems most likely that if the killer was watching the home, he would have needed to have parked on the adjacent street, which was Lawnwoods Drive, and that was to the east of the home. The camp home was located about three houses in from the end of the street at that intersection of Fleming Avenue and Lawnwoods Drive. This would have given him a clear view into the camp's backyard, where he would have seen Leota and the two older children outside at the time. The other option is he could have parked one block north of the home on Madison Avenue, which also may have given him a view into the backyard as well. But no one in the neighborhood reported seeing the car parked anywhere else, and neighbors never told police he drove by multiple times before parking either. His demeanor, both entering and leaving the home, was confident. He wasn't checking his surroundings and looking around to see who was outside, and he wasn't lurking around the home prior to entering. He walked straight from his car into the home. Either this man had done something like this before, or he knew Leota. Also, if you remember, both neighbors and the children said they saw Christine lying on the living room on the floor drinking from a warm bottle. Now, I'm a mother of two children, and we have been out of the bottle phase for many years, but the first thing I thought about is that three-month-old babies don't have the ability to hold their own bottle. Generally, babies don't even start holding their own bottle until they're between six and ten months old. It is never anywhere else in the witness statements or in the police report, but this tells me in order for Christine to be drinking a bottle while her mother was being stabbed in the adjacent room, it would have needed to have been propped up in a way for her to drink it. Now, I find it highly unlikely that Leota would have propped her daughter's bottle and left her unattended while she hung laundry, 
So that tells me that she would have hung the laundry and came back inside and prepared a bottle for her daughter. Also important to note that babies around Christine's age can generally finish a bottle in about 15 to 30 minutes. If she was still drinking her bottle at noon, then at best, she wasn't given that bottle until around 11.30 a.m. So where was the suspect for the first 30 minutes or so that he was in the house before he left? Did he hide in the home and threaten Leota with the knife that he took from their kitchen while she was outside? Or did she know him and something went horribly wrong? The best lead that police would have would come from the murder weapons themselves. Police never revealed if they had found any fingerprints not matching the family at the scene, and they never located the handle on the broken knife. I think their best option would be to go back to the clothing Leota was wearing. If the handle broke on one of the knives while he was stabbing Leota, it is a very strong possibility that the killer cut himself in the process and possibly why that handle was never found. Fast forward many years to July of 2015, 48 years after the murder. A piece in the Des Moines Register by Mike Kylan is published trying to get Leota's case back into the public eye. He interviewed Ray Camp, who was 73 at the time, and the Camp's daughter, Brenda, who was then in her 50s. Ray Camp had worked very closely with investigators for four years after his wife's murder, but said it made him angry for a long time, and he turned to drinking more than he should have. He eventually realized that what he was doing wasn't helping him or his kids, so he felt he had no choice but to get over it and focus on his work and his kids. Brenda, only being three years old at the time, remembers very little of her mother and mostly relies on photos and stories of her told by her family. She said that her mother's murder really took an impact on her when she had her own kids and felt she needed the police file. She needed to know what happened to her mother. At the same time that Brenda finally received the case file, she received a very interesting call from a man in Maryland who said he had done extensive research on a serial criminal by the name of James Mitchell de Bartleben. James had been serving a life sentence for murders and other crimes, but had died in 2011. And according to the man who had called Brenda, the composite sketch released by police seemed to be pretty close to James, which we will include on our page for you to view as well. James de Bartleben was born in 1940 in Arkansas. By the age of 16, it was reported he had attacked his own mother and soon after had received arrest for sodomy, attempted murder, and kidnapping. When James was 17, he had joined the Air Force but had issues with disorderly behavior and reportedly going AWOL several times. He was in the Air Force for less than a year before being discharged, and when he was 18, was sent to live with his family in Texas. James was never convicted of murder, only of rape and counterfeiting, but police believe he is tied to at least eight murders between the years of 1965 and 1983, who were killed either by strangulation or stabbing, and he was also known for tying up his victims. But the locations of these murders are in Louisiana and Rhode Island. As far as I know, there isn't enough clear evidence to tie James to Iowa at the time of Leota's murder, let alone specifically Des Moines, Iowa. But people who know his life and crimes feel that he is a very strong suspect in her murder. In fact, some say they know he is Leota's killer, but at this point, there may be no way to prove it. Something else interesting that came from the news piece in the Des Moines Register was information that had come to light regarding a neighbor 
by the name of Carol Wethridge. Carol had lived a few houses away from the camps and believed it was a mistake by a hitman and the hit was intended for her. The day of the murder, she had left her children with a babysitter and drove past the camp home around noon while on her way to buy a new car. She had said she had a feeling that her life was in danger and apparently adopted a dog, specifically a German shepherd, for protection. She said that she had gone to the police with her suspicions and evidence to back up her story. But do you want to guess when she did this? Not until 2011. She decided to come forward with this information 44 years after the fact. According to Carol, she had been told by police when she came forward that they were looking into former classmates of Leota in Missouri, but gave no other details. If the man who killed Leota Camp is still alive, he would most likely be between his mid-70s and early 80s. And unless he is willing to clear his conscience, we may never know what happened to her that tragic day. Her death left a family broken and a community shattered. But with advancements in DNA and other technology, let's hold out hope that it may still be a possibility that one day the camps will have answers. Please make sure that you check out the Facebook page for pictures relating to this case. And if you have any information regarding the murder of Leota Camp, please contact the Des Moines Police Department at 515-283-4864 or the IDCI at 515-725-6010. Thank you for listening to Secrets in the Cornfield. Tune in next week for a new episode. Secrets in the Cornfield is an Anchor original. Sources for this episode can be found in the episode description. In order to help the families and provide a voice for the victims in these cases, please make sure to follow, rate, and share. And don't forget to join our Facebook page, Secrets in the Cornfield Podcast.